Yes. Welcome to episode 12 of the Chalk Dinosaur Podcast. I am your host, John O'Halloran. Um, this music that's playing right now, it's called uh, the, the Sunset Strings, Italian film music. It was a, it was a vinyl I got at Half Price Books. Uh, it was one of their $1 vinyls. They've just got a you know big shelf of $1 vinyls, and I always get random ones of those and listen to that music when I, uh, when I journal in the morning. And I really liked this one. Bang old best $1 album I ever bought. So nice. I could listen to that, uh, listen to that all day. I've been listening to it every day. <laughs> the music I listen to the most is has turned out to be um yeah these random vinyls because i i get vinyls a lot of times to look for interesting like sampling opportunities or, or texture things that i can kind of like sample and then manipulate and use and stuff um and yeah that's kind of the bulk of the music i listen to now i found some real real good ones i'll probably share some of those uh on this podcast as well, but yeah, um, today I wanted to, well, it's been a long time since I, I did a podcast. It's been almost a month. Um, yeah, stuff just got real busy and I, I stopped prioritizing the time to, to do this, but definitely want to keep doing it. So here we go with an episode about the, the history and the development uh, of Chalk Dinosaur. For anyone who might be interested in the story, uh, which is ongoing, but um, I figured I this might be an uh, interesting topic for anybody who listens to the music and is interested in knowing more about the background of it. So... The question I get the most is probably what does the name mean and where did the name come from? So I'm going to go ahead and nip this one in the bud and uh, answer that question. Chalk Dinosaur, I came up with that name in 2008. No, yeah, 2008. Um, I was writing a bunch of music, recording music. I was just getting into that and... I was I wanted to release the music under a name that wasn't my personal name because John O'Halloran it just isn't one of those names that sounds like a thing you know like um like uh Mars Jackson or something like that name is a great name just to use as your artist name John O'Halloran eh, sounded a little too regular and and un unmemorable so I was looking for a name, trying to come up with some ideas for names that I liked that weren't already taken, which is pretty hard. I'm sure it's getting harder every day to find a name that, that wasn't taken, that isn't taken. So this was in freshman year of college, and Chalk Dinosaur was one of the names that, one of the options I came up with that wasn't taken, and... The meaning behind it, I guess, was 
rooted in this extreme wave of nostalgia that I got when I first went to college, you know, first time moving out of the house, this wave of nostalgia hit me that, you know, my childhood is over and, you know, we're starting a new chapter now, but I was, that, that was the first time in my life that, um, I'd really ever felt that feeling so strongly of like, wow, that period of my life is over. Um, and you know, life is moving forward and I'm an adult now. Um, so I, I was writing a lot of music with those kinds of, a lot of nostalgia and the chalk dinosaur name is kind of just a, kind of just a nostalgic childhood imagery, uh, thing. So yeah, chalk dinosaur. I, I didn't really draw dinosaurs much or, uh, especially with sidewalk chalk, but you know, I did do some sidewalk chalking and, uh, and I, I mean, I, I somewhat like dinosaurs to a regular degree. I'm not like a fanatic or anything, but, um, yeah, that was just like a, a name that stuck and it wasn't taken. So I, it was a name that I felt okay with going with. And, um, and now that is the meaning. That's just what it is. And, <laughs> uh, the meaning is, yeah, that that's just what it is now. So nothing too profound about it. It was just a nostalgic time in my life. And, um, yeah, so now that we got that out of the way, um, I'm going to go back to the beginning where it all began, uh, kind of, but, um, I guess my musical background, I began playing violin when I was five and one of my earliest memories was standing on this floor mat where the teacher had drawn outlines of where my feet should go and I was holding a cardboard violin like a violin made of cardboard and a cardboard bow like they didn't you know I wasn't given a real violin at first they they showed me how to hold the instrument and how to like have the right posture before I um before I was able to like uh you know start playing with an actual instrument and I remember that um one of the vivid memories was (laughs) you know, getting the lesson with the cardboard violin. Um, yeah, it was the Suzuki method, which is turned out to be very helpful for me, you know, forever, uh, because it, it developed my ear. Um, that method of violin is very focused on listening. Uh, we had to do a lot of listening and it really focuses in on listening. Um, which turned out to be a very, very important skill for any kind of musical stuff. Um, so yeah, and it, it was pretty, it felt intense uh, at the time. Like it was a pretty serious endeavor as a, a young child. Um, and I think my favorite part about when I played violin when I was a, when I was a kid, were the improvisation lessons. Um, Every week I would have a lesson and then every, like during the week I'd have a lesson. Then on Saturday we'd have a group lesson uh, where we would play as a group with, you know, the other, all of the students of this teacher, Celia. And then 
there was another lesson that was like an improv session with some some of the players um, led by a different teacher. I think her name was Lisa. And I remember those were really fun. I really liked those. And um, yeah, that was that was my favorite part for sure of the violin when I was growing up. And I, I played from when I was five to when I was nine. So in fourth grade, I stopped to pursue a career in football because uh, I loved football and I wanted to become the next Barry Sanders. And um, yeah, I really wasn't wasn't feeling the violin anymore. Uh, wasn't really, yeah, just didn't want to do it anymore. So I uh, quit the violin and started playing football. Loved that. And then my friend Steve Bezak, um, me and him decided we were going to play clarinet in the band, the school band. So we we joined the school band in fourth grade and played clarinet. That was the only year I played clarinet. But uh, it introduced me to the woodwinds. And when I got to middle school, I switched to the alto saxophone. And I played that for all of middle school. Uh, yeah, and when I was in elementary school, I also got real obsessed with um, tying flies for fly fishing. Uh, got super obsessed with that with my brother Joe. We just went all in on that and, and we're just reading all the books we could find and just nonstop tying flies. And we didn't... I only went fly fishing once or twice, but I... I more so just <laughs> loved tying the flies and making those. And, uh, you know, that was one of my early obsessions. That might be my first, like, super obsession, tying flies. Um, yeah, so back to middle school. I picked up the sax, and I played that through throughout middle school. I uh, went to St. Teresa's Catholic Middle School. Um, elementary school, I went to... North Allegheny, a public public school, and then I went to a Catholic school for for middle school. Played sax for all three years. Uh, got pretty good. Um, I, I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, also, at the time, got got really into robotics because Lego. They released a line of Legos that was called Mindstorms, and it was like a robotics kit you know, with the, in the Legos format, but it had motors and gears and it had all these really cool things that you could, you know, you could make machines out of. And then it would, it had this brick that was like a brain and you could program it. And then, so if you attached, like, you know, there were these different sensors you could put on your robot and, you know, if, if it drove into a wall and hit the bump sensor, you could then program what are the next steps for it to do. So I really enjoyed making making the machines and like experimenting with diff, with you know what different gear ratios can do and uh just like pretty much just ma- making the machines but when it came to the the programming the brick the brain thing that's where I kind of like lost interest and um yeah I pretty much just wanted to make like cars and and uh <laughs> stuff like that but I didn't I didn't get into like the programming side of it and that's where that's where I kind of lost 
interest in that. So when I got to high school, I don't know why I made this decision, but I, I quit playing saxophone and I decided I wanted to play violin again. So in high school, ninth grade, I started taking lessons again with one of my old teachers, Pablo. And um, I joined the North Allegheny Strolling Strings Orchestra. And, uh, but this time, you know, it was a little more casual. I was kind of just doing it for fun. Uh, and, and it was, it was great that way. You know, I, I, there was no pressure to, to really be good or practice much or I was just, uh, doing it for fun and enjoying the social value of, of that class and the people that I met through there should also say the robotics in middle school, that Lego set, that ended up leading into something pretty big because Lego released a camera, the Lego camera. And uh, I think they released a set called Lego Studios. And you would build these movie sets out of Legos. And then they had this Lego camera and it had software. And you could make these stop frame animation videos. And there were effects. It was like easy to use. Uh, and super fun. Like that was so much fun. I remember I went over to my friend Justin Conley's house, and he had that, and that was so much fun. Uh, immediately had to get that. I think I yeah I ended up getting a Lego camera uh, pretty shortly after that, and started messing around with doing little stop frame animations and making these dumb uh, dumb videos. And, uh, yeah, during high school, um, I got a real video camera and we started making videos. Me and my friends would make videos and that was, you know, the most entertaining, amusing, fun thing to do, uh, to make videos and watch them. And, um, yeah, some of the best times, best times ever doing that. And my brother, Joe, my older brother, he was a senior in high school when I was a freshman. And at our high school, there was a film, like a TV program, a class you could take. And they had video equipment and like a video studio and computers. And you could learn how to make videos and, and use that equipment uh, to make your own videos and stuff. And he was doing that. And I was watching the videos that him and his friends were making and... It looked like so much fun, and they were so funny, and uh, yeah, so I started doing the same thing, and uh, throughout high school, that was it. That was what I wanted to do um, always, as any free time I had, I was, I was doing everything I could to have as much time as possible to make videos, and because it was so fun. So, yeah, music was not even in, in my mind at all as a potential thing I would be doing. Even though it was present, I was playing music. Um, also in high school, I, I joined my first band. It was called Addison. It was like a, it was like a pop punk band, and I, I played the bass. And um, we played a couple shows. Uh, and 
let's see, one of the members of that band, Kyle Shear, I think he I, he went on to become a very successful songwriter, actually, and I'm pretty sure he lives in California now, in Los Angeles or something, doing, like, writing songs, like, writing pop songs, I think, for, for other artists. I remember seeing him on a credit for something really big. Um, but anyway, I also met the future members of Chalk Dinosaur version one um, through Addison, that first pop punk band. The band got a new drummer, Rich Bradford, who was a year above me. And uh, that's how I met Rich. And he became the, the first, or he became the drummer of Chalk Dinosaur, the, you know, the first version of Chalk Dinosaur. And, um, his younger brother, Matt, who was a year below me, Matt Bradford, he played the bass. And I remember he would let me borrow his bass amp because I didn't, I didn't really have anything good. And the Bradfords are the kings of gear. So, uh, he lent me his bass amp. So I, I became friends with those two. And, um, yeah, a year or two later, we would end up being in a band together. But yeah, got real obsessed with the uh, making the videos in high school. I was I joined the TV program, and um, yeah, loved making videos. And then towards the end of high school, on the computers they had GarageBand, and I remember getting increasingly into that and having uh, spending more time on GarageBand every day before class. I would. Like before school started, I would go. I would go to the lab where they had the computers, and I would just make uh, make beats like these techno beats on GarageBand, and um, that was really fun. And that was kind of the seeds of music starting to uh, seeds of like recording and music production starting to sprout there. And uh, by the end of high school, I couple things happened I didn't I for some reason I don't know why I only applied to one one film school NYU which is like a very prestigious film program and I didn't get in um but I could have if I would have gone to their regular some other school for a year or something I don't know I just didn't um for whatever reason I didn't I didn't pursue that harder and um then I bought a recording interface and I started recording uh, at my house the summer before I left for college and I got really into that because I, I was starting to ramp up like my interest in making music towards the end of high school on those uh, school computers and then I got a computer for college and that summer before college I you know totally got obsessed at that point with with recording and um, making music in GarageBand um that's when I first started trying to make make ideas, make recordings that were in my head like complete songs. So that in, in, included, you know, some lyrics and vocals. I was just trying to make like a complete song and I wasn't really writing anything personal, nothing very profound. In fact, a lot of it's pretty terrible. 
and uh, very embarrassing for me to listen to in the presence of other people. But you can listen to it on your own. Just don't listen to it with me in the room because it's embarrassing how it's embarrassing. Um, mostly just the vocals and the, the, the lyrics. And I posted all of these recordings on a website that my dad, my dad made a website where I could store all these musical ideas that I was making. And I'm so grateful that he did that because that website now has over a thousand recordings on it. Um, starting with, you know, the, one of the very first ones, it's called Don't Cry. It's on johnohalloran.com. If you go all the way back to volume one, that's where you can hear where it started the summer before college. And that's, yeah, and you can just hear the progression of how my writing and recordings and musicality progress fr starting from there. Because at that point, I had I had just gotten a guitar. Um, pretty, pretty much like every instrument I could... I could play enough. I really, I could just like play enough. Um, well, I was very limited. I'll put it that way. I'd only been playing guitar for like a year maybe. And yeah, it was just a very primitive skill set. And um, yeah, making music was like playing video games for me. It was just fun to do. And um Oh man, that reminds me. When I was younger, back in the I don't know Gateway two thousand era. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember this, but on Windows there was this program called Sound Recorder, and I just remember that was really. <laughs> I had a lot of fun on that program and it's the most basic program. It's just, it's just a record button. <laughs> it's just like, you know, a sound recorder. And then there's some effects that you can put on it. And those were so fun to play with, like uh, slowing. I, I used to do all these little experiments on it. Like I would say stuff really slowly and, and then I'd speed it up and, see if it would sound like a normal cadence when it had the high pitch. And then I would do the same thing and slow it down, like talk really fast and and slow it down and see if it sounded like a normal speech, but with uh, a lower pitch. And then I would try to say words backwards and then I would reverse it to see if it sounded like a normal, normal speech when it was reversed. So like, retsu retsim, I think that's Mr. Twister backwards. Mr. Twister is the the name of a fishing lure brand. <laughs> I was really into fishing in my childhood. And uh, yeah, it never sounded, it always sounded super demented and weird when you would say a word backwards and then reverse it. So it would say it forwards, but it sounded really weird. If I can find any of those, I'll, I'll play some. We <laughs> it, was, it was just fun to record and listen. I don't know why. That was just always captivating to record I mean, video, audio, to have that captured and then, like, listen to it. Um, anyway, where was I? Yeah. College. So that's when I really got obsessed with recording. I was, and writing, writing songs. I was, you know, trying to make songs that were 
complete, I guess, which meant in my mind at the time that it had lyrics, you know, it had just had all the parts of a song. I, I didn't know what I, I didn't have a plan for any of these or I was just making them for fun and definitely thought I would get someone else to sing if I did, ever did any kind of musical project. I, I was recording all these as placeholders and eventually it just became not a placeholder. But um, yeah, they're pretty bad. Um, probably the first 20 or 30 are pretty embarrassing. But then they start to get, you know, the thing is too, with all these early recordings, there's always something about it that I really like. Um, usually the part that's embarrassing to me is the lyrics and the singing. And I'm pretty amazed that I kept going um, because it, I don't know, it was just, it was rough in the beginning, but I kept going and it got better. And uh, that in itself, just like being able to hear a progression, feel like you're making progress is, is really motivating and inspiring. Um, once you start to, you know, once you've, figure out that you've learned something and that, you know, this sounds better. You've made some kind of little jump and now your music sounds better than it did before. And that continues today. That just every little thing you learn or advancement you make just feels good. Um, which I guess you could, that speaks to, uh, maybe human nature as a whole and just the, uh, satisfaction of um progression and growth but anyway what do we got here yeah you can check out all of my recordings on johnohalloran.com yeah if you go back to the beginning you'll hear the you can hear the whole progression and and what happens and then at a certain point i think after like i forget how many but that's when i got a in 2012 that's when i got hired not hired but that's when i started doing work for tv stuff um writing a lot of background music for reality tv shows um if you ever noticed reality tv shows they the music changes you know every five to ten seconds it seems like and a lot of times it's it's just faintly there you don't even really notice it um i've heard it referred to as wallpaper and <laughs> that is that is what I do to support myself I make that stuff and um, you know I, I put all those up on my website my kind of like my personal reel and uh, so you can hear all that stuff too but the first you know couple dozen volumes are you know, songs that I wrote for, for, uh, for me. Yeah. So once I, once I bought a recording interface and I could record audio into my computer, it was, it was over. Uh, I, I just got obsessed with that and haven't stopped since then. Uh, the first Chalk Dinosaur album. Well, sorry, I'm getting off track here. So I was collecting these songs and eventually I thought that I wanted to play a show. And so I did that. 
the first show I ever played was April 20th, 2008. It was at a place called the Shadow Lounge. And it was with this company that was called Big Time Entertainment, I think. And I think I ended up having to pay them. Uh, it was dumb, but I didn't know any better. And um, so that first show, that was just billed as John O'Halloran. Um, and my brother Joe, my older brother, he was playing the drums. And my one of my uh, friends from college that I made my freshman year when I played this show, Charles Rollins, he lived in the, the room across the suite from me in my dorm. He played the bass. And then this guy named Chris played the guitar. And I can't remember his last name. But he was a music student and um, played guitar. And that was the show. And uh, yeah, we played some, some tunes. And uh, then we played again another show a month later, May 25th. This was the first Chalk Dinosaur show, billed as Chalk Dinosaur. And this show was a completely different band. This show featured the Bradford Boys, who I mentioned before. Rich Bradford, the drummer. Matt Bradford, the bass player. And this time, I think my brother Joe played guitar. Played a uh, similar set of songs. Pretty crazy, We'd, now that I think about it. That was... I was a month apart and with a completely different band. But, you know, time goes slower when you're younger. <clears throat> so anyway, that was the first show. And then, um, yeah, we kept it rolling for, kept playing Chalk Dinosaur shows. I would call that uh, version one. Version one was me and the Bradfords and my brother Joe. And then later, a guy named Harrison Wargo. And occasionally, a guy named Clay O'Connor um, filling the fourth man role. Um, yeah, so we played, we're playing shows, and I, I started uh, getting more serious about recording in 2008. Once I realized, you know, that I was super obsessed with this, I started uh, looking for ways to improve my quality and my techniques and stuff so you know i i bought a multi-channel interface so i could record real drums and eventually then i bought a a nice microphone preamp presonus adl 600 which i thought would be the silver bullet and make my stuff sound like quote unquote professional um which it definitely helped. I still use it today. I think my my parents split that with me, which was amazing because that's that was expensive. But um, with that stuff, that was kind of an investment in the first Chalk Dinosaur album, which came out in two thousand nine. It was a self titled album. Um. I'd made demos of all these songs and then I re-recorded them with the good gear and then released those. 
So on johnohalloran.com, you can hear all the demos. And then if you listen on Spotify, those are the, the re-recorded high-quality versions. And um, yeah, I was always amazed at how a lot of times the demo I would like better, even though it was recorded and performed in an inferior fashion, and the sound quality was inferior, but the feeling was hard to capture when you re-record something. Anyway, so the first album came out in 2009. Chalk Dinosaur version 1.0 was rolling along, playing a lot of shows, it felt like. Um, but they were all around Pittsburgh, you know, it was all local shows. We never... We played in Slippery Rock once, and we played in Allegheny College in Meadville once. But other than that, we never, we never played outside of Pittsburgh. Um, and the second Chalk Dinosaur album called Still Here, that got released in 2010. And then at the end of that year... Um, I'm not sure if we played any shows in 2011 or if we stopped at the end of 2010, but um, yeah, we stopped with the live shows at that point. Um, kind of got to a point where it was kind of just feeling more like a burden and, and there wasn't much passion in it. And um, yeah, it seemed like everybody kind of kind of lost interest in it or kind of lost lost the desire to really push with it so we stopped and um about that time was when i went to my first music festival bonnaroo uh in 2010 and that was that was a pretty life-altering experience that was the first time I'd ever seen music on that scale with that production quality and all those different kinds. And <clears throat> that was, yeah, that really kind of lit my fire for, for, for performing and, you know, what, and also what kinds of music I, I liked. I was exposed to a lot of different kinds of music. I remember when I saw my morning jacket for the first time, on the Bonnaroo main stage from the pit, which is like this 20-foot area in the front of the stage that you can wait in a line to get in. We waited in line for an hour or something to get into the front of the main stage. And I'm so happy we did that because that show really, uh, really changed me and um, really inspired me and... Uh, but anyway, so as that was happening, I also, so Chalk Dinosaur stopped playing shows. I was still recording music, but we had stopped playing shows and kind of disbanded. And um, yeah, so I didn't play any Chalk Dinosaur shows again until 2015. And in 2015, that's when I started the solo show stuff which was like electronic music with elements of live performance. So I would play 
guitar over beats I would make or synthesizer and um, some combination of live and programmed elements. That was like the flow state material. Um, but in between that time where I wasn't playing any shows, I released a few albums, made some strides in my production, made a lot of strides in my production actually, starting in 2011 to 2014. Um, and I was also playing in a couple other bands. One of them was uh, Bad Boxes, which Harrison Wargo, who played in Chalk Dinosaur for a year or two, um, that, that was his project. And I played in that for a little while. And I also played in a band called Blue of Colors, which is the side project of Steve Sabosley, who who's the founder of uh, Punchline, which is a Pittsburgh pop punk band. And um, so I was still performing, but with those two bands during that time. And uh, yeah, I didn't do that for too long. Had a couple years where I just didn't play at all. And then, uh, yeah, in 2015, when I developed my solo set, that's when I started playing again. And um, that really came from just making the videos. I, I was just messing around with my gear and my studio and tried to make a, I just started recording videos of me doing that and it evolved and uh, got more sophisticated and until it was stuff that I could perform live at a show and it seemed like it would be entertaining. Um, so yeah, that would be Chalk Dinosaur version 2.0, which is the solo electronic hybrid show. Uh, the Flow State stuff. Flow State is an, is an album I released in 2016. If you're wondering what, I'm, what I mean when I'm saying that. That's like the music I was performing solo in 2015 when I started playing shows again. And that really took off fast. Uh, it seemed like every show, there was somebody there that knew some other people and told their friends and that was that was there was a very strong response to that and i think yeah a couple shows in there were some gray area people that that saw it and gray area is one of the the biggest and best like concert promoter venue companies in Pittsburgh and they got behind me and gave started giving me opportunities to play to open for bigger bands that were going to have a crowd there so I was they gave me the opportunity to share you know my music with with a crowd and that was amazing and I'm super grateful to them for that and uh around that time my younger brother Nick who plays drums with me now in the full band he was in college in virginia tech and when he would come home on christmas break or any holiday break we would we'd play music together 
and uh, one time he, I had a show during Christmas break and he expressed an interest in playing it with me. So I said, heck yeah. And we played a show. It was at a, the strip district music festival at a place called Framezilla, which was a framing shop that was repurposed into like a, you know, pop-up music venue for that event. It's a very ill-equipped room to have a show, especially the kind of show that we were playing, which a lot of the, you know, all of the bass, a lot of the elements of sound is coming out of the PA speakers. Like it's dependent on there being like a decent PA and the PA was really small and underpowered there and only one of the speakers actually worked. But somehow it, I must've sounded okay in there because the crowd in there was so rowdy and it was packed. I can't believe how packed it was at that show. And when we were finished playing, I remember that was the loudest uh, cheering I've ever heard. It was like uh, painful. It was crazy. I, I could not believe that, that that show happened. We were not expecting that at all. One, for there to be that many people. And two, that it would be so well received despite the technical shortcomings. And... Yeah, that was just a that was just a crazy alignment of things. I, I think I think Recluse was playing that show too. There was just a ton of people at that show that I would end up that were just very influential people. I think, and it was like that was the right place to be for us. And how I don't know exactly how we ended up there in that room, but that was the right room for us. And uh. Yeah, that was. Uh, we always talk about that. How crazy that show was, and and how many people were at that show. Like, it just blows my mind how that that out of any show was was like the stars aligned for that show. But anyway, that that was the first show that Nick played with me. So then it was me and Nick, and I'd be playing the beats and playing guitar, and Nick would be playing the drums. And uh, yep, then we got. Got invited to play Farm Jam Festival in uh, Brookville, PA. And that really opened my mind up a whole ton to to all of the great musicians that are in Pittsburgh that I didn't know about. You know, the, that's where I saw the Clock Reads and the Common Heart. And that's where I met all of the people that would really inspire me that were from Pittsburgh. Um, Farm Jam yeah, it's always a super inspiring event to go to. And um, yeah, so first year it was just me performing. Second year, me and Nick. And I think Andrew might have played the second year for a couple songs. Andrew is the bass player of the full band, the current band. Andrew Belcastro is the bass player. And he grew up across the street from us. So me and Nick and Andrew, we would play all the time in the basement because there was there's just like instruments down there because my brother my brother played drums my older brother and my oldest brother played bass and yeah there were just instruments down there so we would jam a lot and uh yeah eventually he started to get worked into the the show and um 
So this was version 2.2, adding a bass player. It's now three people. Um, and we'd kind of do our sets, like, whatever we had prepared. So I would do some stuff by myself, and then I would do the stuff that I did with Nick, and then what we had prepared with, with Andrew as a three-piece, we'd do that. And then around that time, John Henderson got in touch with me through Facebook. He sent me a message saying that he liked the music and that he would love to get together to jam sometime or collaborate. And he sent me a link to his SoundCloud page. And he had a ton of ideas, musical ideas on his SoundCloud page. And, um, you know, and the ideas on his SoundCloud, they're all like, melodic theme kind of ideas and so I, I really didn't have a grasp of how good of a guitar player he was until he came over to jam with his with the members of his other band uh, the buckle downs um he came over with damien the bass player of the buckle downs and dave the keyboard player and uh yeah we had a jam session which was recorded and it, it was, our minds were blown, uh, me, Nick, and Andrew, because, uh, yeah, it was such a good jam session. And so, ever since then, we've been, we were getting together with Damien and Dave and John, and then eventually it was just, we were getting together with John. And, um, yeah, we were all really blown away at his, how well his guitar playing, how good it was, and how well it fit with, you know, matched our styles and our tendencies and stuff like that so so we started playing with him more and uh i made a collaboration with him on the album star blazer it's the first uh collaboration i did with john it's called uh entropic motion off the album star blazer he sent me some guitar loops that he made and then and then I arranged them and added st a bunch of stuff like drums and and bass and um, and we kind of developed it from there. And then really liked how that song turned out. And um, we were looking for ways to get John into involved in our in the live show because we needed to to make that happen somehow. And uh, I think we kind of did it the same way that Andrew got involved. Um, the first show John played with us was at Farm, Farm Jam. Yeah, a couple years ago. Two years ago, I think. And he played, I think, half the set with us. We did... Part of the set was just me and Nick. Part of the set was me, Nick, and Andrew, I think. And then part of the set was all four of us. Just because we didn't have enough like four piece material prepared yet. So we kind of just like worked it in more and more until eventually our whole set was the four of us and the music that we make together. And yeah, that was kind of the, that was the goal. And that's where we're at right now. It's the four of us chalk dinosaur version three. Um, it's me, my brother, Nick, uh, our friend and housemate, 
Andrew Belcastro on the bass, and John Henderson on the guitar. And um, yeah, Sprout, that's the, that's the album that we made together. Um, that's the first album that I really collaborated on in entirety with uh, with a full with a band with three other people and I've always wanted I've always wanted to do that um, to have an album or just music in general that was really a product of the whole band and not just just me because a lot of the albums are just me um, and Sprout is really interesting it's really interesting music to me because it it didn't all come from me it's a very it's a very collaborative process and um yeah it it, it, it a little bit of everybody is in that and i i've always wanted to have that and experience that mutual writing and um contribution thing and yep so that's I think, is that it? All right. I thought that would take longer. I mean, I didn't go over everything about all, you know, the albums that were released. All the albums, there's, there's 19 now. But the last two albums were not full band albums. Those were just me uh, with some guests. But, um, we are currently working on the next full full band album, putting that together. But in the meantime, you know, I've got music to release while we work on that. Um, yeah, so that's it. That's the history. And uh, I think... Uh, I guess I could say, I could talk about um yeah we just played in Chicago. That was the first time we played there. It was a one-off show in Chicago, which is odd. But there was a reason for us doing it and um the reason being we got in a uh, booking agent contacted us booking agent from a very large booking agency and through him he got us hooked up with this other guy who was putting together this show and he asked you know asked if we wanted to play and you know the the band chachuba was a it was a like a very fitting style for us to be playing with and i don't know it was just it felt like a knock at the door and we thought, let's answer it and see what happens because, you know, this booking agent that books this other band that, you know, I feel that we're, are, are we're at, you know, the same level, uh, they get booked at a lot of shows that, you know, we would like to get booked at. So I guess the hope is that maybe, maybe by doing this show and kind of making a good impression on Chicago and on this this band and on this booking agent that, you know, it could possibly open some doors for us down the future, down the line, in the future. Um, so we'll see. Plus, 
it ended up being just a fun trip because we we played on Friday and then we ended up just hanging out in Chicago till Sunday. We actually got in on Thursday, got in Thursday night and ended up having a great night out <laughs> on Thursday and staying up super late. And then, yeah, the show went really well. Um, we made a great impression on Chicago, which I'm very happy about. Very happy that everyone was willing to make that trip and and really enjoyed uh, getting to hang out with, with them in that city and get to see a place that I don't really ever get to see. But it was one of those shows where, you know, it makes no financial sense at all. But at this at this stage in the game, uh, that it not many shows are going to make sense financially, and that's just the reality. Until you until uh, you have the demand to uh, to be able to fill a room, <laughs> which I I don't know if we have. We'll find out. Okay, we'll we'll have we'll get a little bit of an idea because this was a show trade. So Chachuba hosted us in Chicago at their show, which was on a Friday. And in return, we are going to host them in Pittsburgh when they come through Pittsburgh, which is going to be on March 26th at the Thunderbird. But the thing is, that's a Thursday, which is okay. I mean, a lot of people will go out on a Thursday because it's almost a weekend. So we have that going for us. But this is the first show that this will be the first Chalk Dinosaur headlining show, I believe, that we've, like, instigated. <laughs> I I guess the Jamberg launch party show, that we might have been the headliner for that. I can't remember. It was, like, a co-headline, probably, with Broctopus and Voodoo Circuit. I, I don't really know, but this is definitely the first show that we are in charge of, that we put together so I guess it'll be time to uh, see what we're made of here and see how many see how well we can promote it and see how many people we can get through the door on a Thursday to uh, to see us play um, we'll see I have no experience doing this actually promoting a show and you know I always took that for granted because uh, Chalk Dinosaur is usually, we're usually just playing shows that we're like supporting another band or we're like a show that's already going and it's being promoted heavily. Like all this stuff, all of the logistics and everything are already taken care of and we just show up and play. And so I really have taken it for granted what it takes to, you know, what it'll take to actually get people to come and, and get the word out, which is, you know, largely i mean it is our responsibility now so it'll be a new experience we'll, we'll try it out worst that can happen we try our best and not a lot of people show up and that'd be a bummer but as long as we tried you know that's that's not too bad we can learn from it and then after that show, on the 27th, the day after Chalk Dinosaur, we'll be playing 
in Westchester, Pennsylvania with Chachuba again. We're going to go with them to Philadelphia, well, Westchester, and play a show at this music venue called Sprout Music Collective with Tweed, who is a band that I've played with twice, and I sat in with them last year at some kind of jam, which was a music festival in Eastern PA. And so I, I've, I've run into those guys a lot, um, so this would be a good good fit. Not sure yet whether it'll be what arrangement it'll be, whether it'll be solo, duo, or full band. Still figuring that out, but um, whatever the case, Chalk Dinosaur will be playing in Westchester at Sprout Music Collective for the first time ever um, the day after our Pittsburgh show. So that'll be exciting. It's always fun to get to play to new people, like a new crowd that hasn't heard any any of my old tricks, um, you know, because I feel like people in Pittsburgh, have probably, they probably know all my tricks now. So I got to gotta go to a new town where nobody... Nobody knows my tricks that I can play for them. So, that's it. Yeah, I really neglected this podcast, but... Uh, yeah, getting back on the saddle here because... I like podcasts. And I like hearing about music from people who make it so you know maybe someone will maybe somebody will like this and even if not it's just a good historical document for me to go back and listen to when I'm an old man and uh, you know it's the tradition of oral history that's uh, that's maybe you know is that the appeal of the podcast these days you know it's it's the storytelling, it's the oral history, it's... And we have the benefit now of capturing all of these into, uh... In, you know, an indestructible, uh, everlasting digital format. Well, not everlasting and indestructible, but, you know, relatively compared to my life and what's potentially gonna, you know, the destruction of all data you know, that's coming inevitably at some point, but hopefully not for several thousand years um, long after I'm gone. Unless they come up with some kind of bionic uh, bionic uh, body parts that uh, can, can preserve my mind. And perhaps they can preserve my mind, extract my consciousness, um, and put it into a, another host. Like uh, some kind of machine, or perhaps some kind of... Uh, some kind of organic host that they could grow in a lab. They could just extract my consciousness and put it in a new host and just repeat that cycle. And t as the hosts die, they just keep replacing it with a new one. And then, um, and then maybe at some point, I will witness the destruction of all digital data and, and we'll have to go back to the paper maps, which would be a real drag because you know, digital maps, real-time directions is, uh, that's just a, a, you take it for granted now, but, you know, I tried doing some paper map traveling and, uh, you know, out west where there's a lot of, there's a lot of places where you don't get reception, so I had these, these maps, these paper maps, 
was like, oh, this will be just like the olden days. And then I found out that it's not as easy as looking at your phone directions. And uh, yeah, and then I also figured out that if I loaded the map in a place where I had reception, it would save my directions. And then I ended up not really having to use the paper maps at all anyway. <laughs> it was just for fun. It was just for fun. I'm no good with them. So, did you know that from Pittsburgh you can get a round trip ticket to Fort Lauderdale for $65? I feel like I have to go to Fort Lauderdale just because it's so cheap. That's cheaper than if I were to Uber to the suburbs and back. 65 bucks. I kind of want to do that this winter. When will I have the time? That's the question. When will I have the time? The time is there. You just have to make it. Hmm. Okay, there's no point in this being part of this podcast, so I'm going to sign off now and uh, until I have something better to say. So, hope you have a good weekend. See ya.